Welcome to the Beautiful and True Project podcast. This is a place where we talk about beauty and truth, the things that are most important to us, the things that ground us, and the things that uplift us. My guests are not celebrities. They are, in many ways, leading kind of ordinary lives, but they pay extraordinary attention to the world around them, and that makes the difference. My guest this week is David Rice, the executive director of First Folio Theatre, a gardener, a baker of absolutely scrumptious cookies, and someone I consider to be truly good folks. Today, we're talking about the power of taking risks and sometimes failing, the keys to fruitful creativity, whether in art or marriage, and why sobbing at a movie on a third date can be the opposite of a deal-breaker. This one's a little bit longer than usual, but oh, it's worth it. Hi, David. It's so great to talk to you. Oh, it's delightful to talk to you too, Jen. I I am absolutely excited to talk to you about these things. Um, uh, when I was first starting this project and I had, you know, I sent out all these questions to all these people, you were one of the first people I thought of that I wanted to participate in the, <laughs> in the initial project because, you know, I've known you off and on, mostly off actually for like 20 years now. Can you believe that? Yeah, I was, I was just laughing about that, trying to, to remember how long it had been since we had worked together at First Folio and, and realizing, yeah, that it went back to, what was it, 2002, I think. 2002, right after I graduated from grad school. And that yeah. is ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was so happy we reconnected. I'm yeah. so happy to see all of your Facebook posts. And they're just full of life and uh-huh. full of joy at kind of everyday things. And the more I do this podcast, the more I'm learning that that really does seem to be the key. So I'm excited to talk to you is the short of it. Well, good. I'm excited to talk to you too. I was honored to be included in your initial uh, uh, foray with the questions and all. And now to be a part of this podcast, I just am over the moon. I just... <laughs> I think it's wonderful that you that you thought enough of me to include my thoughts and insights and interpretations in this thing. Well, well, then we're a mutual admiration society right now, and I love it. I love it. So I'm going to do a little more admiring. Okay. <laughs> um, kind of like I just said, I've always thought of you as somebody who's on the lookout for the beautiful and true in the world. Would you say that's accurate of yourself? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Going back uh, pretty much as far as I can remember, I have been drawn to the things that are that the things that spark joy in the world. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's that's, you know, that's one of the things that makes something beautiful is that it sparks joy in someone. Mm -hmm. Do you think Oh, this is going to, I was going to get deep right away. Um, That's okay. When I think of beautiful and true, it usually does, like beautiful and true. It usually mm-hmm. does evoke some kind of joy in me, but sometimes also a little bit of pain. Is that, mm-hmm. is that something that resonates with you? 
It certainly well. can. It mm-hmm. certainly can. I don't. Um, uh, I, I don't know that that it automatically goes hand in hand. But I I think the things that can bring us pain are only or primarily, perhaps I should say, the things which touch us emotionally. And likewise, the things that bring us joy are primarily the things that touch us emotionally. So it Mm -hmm. kind of goes hand in hand. It's in league with the, the realization that the only people who can really hurt us deeply um, or the people who can hurt us the most deeply, I should say, are those that we trust the most, those that we love the most, those that mm. we let in. And I think it's the same thing, that uh, those very things that we find beautiful um, and, and, and bring us joy are also those things which touch other emotions. And amongst those can be, you know, forms that of, of pain or disappointment or loss. Yeah. <laughs> I really didn't mean to get that deep that quickly. <laughs> um, it goes where it goes. It does. And I just wrote a, a blog post about, because I part of what I've been, been doing the last couple of weeks is th- trying to think about the opposites of beautiful and true. And ah. I was like, because I, I would like to get a handle on it. And these are not things that are particularly easy def- to define, we kind of have to talk around them sometimes. So I was like, okay, what is the opposite? And I was thinking about beauty. I was like, is the opposite of beauty ugliness? And I came to the conclusion that it's not. That that often ugliness is just beauty that we haven't paid enough attention to. Oh, interesting. Uh Uh And I'm not talking about the ugly ways that people treat each other. I want to be clear about that. Those Uh are just plain ugly. Um, But yeah that maybe the opposite of beauty is meh. That's okay. <laughs> it's funny because as soon as you, as soon as you mentioned that, that was, that was the same thing that I thought is um, the opposite of beauty would be, would be the lack of beauty, which would be blandness. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's just, it's just there. I also, um, I also think that you're right about, um, Oftentimes, things that we might mistakenly label as being ugly um, are actually things that we just haven't paid enough attention to, focused on, uh, looked deeper into. When I was out in the American Southwest for the very first time of of truly driving through it, mm-hmm. I went out in uh, uh, in 2017 and and went to visit a friend who was doing a couple of shows at the Utah Shakespeare Festival in Southern Utah uh, over by um, Zion National Park and all. Mm. And I flew into Las Vegas and then got out of there as quickly as I could. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. And and, uh, you rented a car and drove through over to Southern Utah and, uh, uh, and I was fascinated. I thought it would be such a boring drive. I'll be honest with you. I was prepared. I was prepared for it to be boring. And because it was it's, because it's mostly desert, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because and because it's, you know, again in my mind at the time it was, well, it's just going to be endless miles of rock and desert and more rock and desert. And 
it was one of the most stunningly beautiful drives I've ever been on in my mm-hmm. life. And um, every few miles, the landscape would change and uh, there'd be new colors and new thoughts. And, and there were times when I just had to had to pull over and stop and admire the beauty mm-hmm. so that I didn't get distracted while I was driving. So, yeah. Uh, I went to Sedona about a year ago for the first time and I'd never mm-hmm. really been to a desert Mm-hmm. And I was expecting it, again, to be, you know, pretty boring, except maybe the the big red rocks. Those might be kind of cool. It was stunning. Oh, uh, how bad. It was just absolutely amazing. And I can't wait to go back. Um, one of the things for me that I think about, spiders. I don't know how you feel about spiders. <laughs> Not good. Not good. <laughs> I've learned to tolerate them in my home because I've convinced myself that that they are beneficial creatures. I've read enough, but but it's basically a uh, all right. Please stay out of my way. I won't bother you, but please don't bother me either. <laughs> well, I, they still give me the heebie-jeebies a little bit, but I used to kind of I used to hate them, and I used to when I was younger, I used to kill them, and then I realized that I was killing them just because they gave me the heebie-jeebies, and just because they were kind of mm-hmm. ugly to me. Mm-hmm. And then I started learning a little bit about them. Well, first of all, yeah. I thought that was wrong. It's wrong to kill something just because it's ugly. Yeah. Um, and as I learned about them, they are so interesting. The way that they oh. move. Uh-huh. Do, you know the, do you know the way they move? No, no. Tell me about it. I'm going to. Um, they, don't have, okay. they don't have muscles, exactly. Their legs. Huh. You, and you know when a spider dies, how the legs curl up and it flops over? Yeah. Yeah. The reason for that is their legs are actually hollow tubes and they have a little valve in their shoulders. So what happens when they want to move is the little valve opens up and I have to tell you, I don't know if it's blood or some kind of other fluid, but some kind of fluid rushes in, fills the tube so that it makes it extend. And then once it gets heavy enough, it drops. And then there's a little sticky pad at the very tip that grips the ground. And then they close the valve off again. The fluid drains out and it pulls them forward. And they're doing that with eight legs all the time. It's ah, it's just brilliant. That is flipping fascinating. I had Isn't no it? idea. Yeah, it's this whole kind of, it's, it's a simple hydraulic system, but they have to yeah. get it to operate in sequence. And oh, it's just... It blew my mind. And after that, I started looking at spiders and they became, they became kind of beautiful to me. And before they'd just been ugly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that with me. That is <laughs> kind of cool. I will pay a little more attention the next time I see a spider in the house or out in my garden. I actually uh, share that with just about everyone who will listen. Yeah. So now yeah. I have a captive and, audience. And- Yay! <laughs> Well, and like and like and like so many other people, I am much cooler about spiders outside than I am inside. Oh, um, for sure. I, yeah. I have orb orb weavers who will, you know, uh, late in the summer and on into the fall, make these beautiful webs outside my front door and my back door, and I, I, I find myself going out of my way to make sure I don't disturb them mm-hmm. uh, because they're because they're so beautiful and uh, and and. Uh, so, and they so deserve great. to have their homes intact. Yes, 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 <laughs> exactly. I will um, admit, I still have a difficult time with uh, with centipedes in my house. 
Oh, how sneaky. Oh, those are scary. Yeah, and I, I have had friends who have talked to me about how how benign they are and how like spiders, if you've got them, it means that they're eating some other little critters that are sure. there or they wouldn't be surviving. And you can tell me all of that and I still, yeah, I still go. <laughs> yeah, I know. They, they, they scare, I leave them alone, but they scare me. And when yeah. they, they kind of writhe as they go and their little legs kind of shimmer and it's yeah. just, it's, it's the worst for me. I am, I am with you on that completely. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. I am. I am in great admiration of the entomologists of this world who can um, study all of those kinds of creatures and uh, and find their beauty. It's a great thing. It is a great thing, and 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 God bless them. I'm glad yeah. they're doing it, and that it's not my calling. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is funny because I used to have people say the same thing to me about teaching. <laughs> mm, yes. You know, yes. Um, it's wonderful that you do this. I have no idea how you can find joy in this, but I'm glad you do because it would drive me crazy. And I was, when I was a teacher, I just, I was, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved the job. Yeah. Remind me, what, uh, where did you teach and what level, what did you teach? I'm sure it was English. Uh, English yeah. Or theater. On, yeah. On and off, on and off, a total of 22 years, I taught high school uh, English and speech uh, and theater. Mm-hmm. My last 17 years of teaching were at Morris Community High School, which is out west of Chicago, um, out in uh, in Grundy County, out west of Joliet. Public speaking is one of those things that people will often talk about how it gives them the heebie-jeebies. Oh, yeah. yeah. How can you do that? Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld used to have a bit where he would talk about the fact that in polls, it would show that people were more afraid of public speaking than of dying. And he would point out that that means that if you were at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> uh, I, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so I've been teaching, I've been, I've been teaching public speaking at Harold Washington uh, oh, for for a few years, just as an adjunct in the evenings. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't know that that's actually true. I wonder. <laughs> I think, I think again, it's like any other poll. The, the reality, the reality is different than what we respond. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, going back to my earlier question that launched this whole discussion, sure. um, so this this search for for beauty and joy this has been something that you've had since you can remember. Do you feel like your parents also had it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I grew up in a household where I I literally don't know that there was ever a single day that there wasn't laughter in my mm. house. I grew up in that kind of a family. Um, um, not that there wasn't, you know, conflict or difficulties, things of that nature. I don't mean to say that my, my, my growing up was totally idyllic. But on the other hand, I do have to laugh. I, I grew up thinking that shows like Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best were, were documentaries. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because that's the kind of household I grew up in. I really did have those kinds of parents who um, 
who were really supportive and understanding. And it wasn't until I truly until I got to my adult years that I realized um, how few people had that experience growing mm -hmm. up. So, so yeah, but yes, my parents were um, always interested in, in, in beauty and truth. Yes. Mm. So you are, you were a teacher and at the mm -hmm. same time, you were also creating and running First Folio Shakespeare Festival. Yes. That was simultaneous. Yes. Um, what, what happened was uh, when I got out of college, I started teaching high school. Um, I was doing community theater as well. Um, I just, you know, can't have been able to imagine since junior high school, I haven't been able to conceive of my life without theater. Um, uh, or maybe even earlier than that, I knew it was a goal. But uh, um, I met Allison doing a, a show in community theater. And when we got married, we decided that we would give the world of professional theater a try. So I left my teaching job and then uh, took on a lot of other, you know, day jobs, bartending and the like, and delivering phone books door to door and everything else I needed <laughs> to do to keep the bills paid. And, and we gave the world of professional theater a try. And we both had, as most people in theater do, had some really great years and some really awful years. Mm -hmm. And our daughter was born um, um, just a year after we got married. And so after a few years of the up and down income, I said, you know, I think I need to get back to teaching for a while to have the steady income mm -hmm. and insurance benefits and things of that nature. And it wasn't a huge sacrifice because I, I loved teaching. But Allison knew that I was missing theater, and she's the one who came up with the idea and did the legwork originally to um, to figure out that there was a place right near where we lived, uh, the Maze Lake Peabody Estate, that had just been bought by the Forest Reserve, and they were looking to turn it into an art center, and it was just very serendipitous. But I give her full credit for having the idea and having done the legwork while I was busy teaching to to find people to help set it up as a not-for-profit and um, figure out what we needed to do to get a stage designed and installed and all of that. And then, yeah, it, it just took off from there. We were originally summers only. And then by 2004, the mansion on the site had been opened and we were given an opportunity to expand to year round. And we did. And somehow, I still have no idea looking back how I did this, Somehow I managed to teach full time and run the theater um, uh, during the school year as well as during the summer, all the way up through 2009. And then I left teaching in 2009 and spent full time first folio ever since. Oh, uh, that's five years of that is a lot. I know, I know a little bit about what it takes to run. Uh, so I'm on the board of an opera company and we do pretty uh -huh. much one show a year and it is exhausting yes. <laughs> to be, te to be teaching full time, which is, uh, it's a huge amount of creative output to be a teacher. And then mm -hmm. on top of it, to be running a theater company that's doing how many shows a year by that point? Three? Four? Um, by, the, by the time, by the time I, I retired, we were doing four shows a year. We would Ooh. do the outdoor, outdoor uh, show and then a, a fall, winter, and spring indoor show every year. Well, and and doing the outdoor show, that that is, in fact, how I met you. Because yep. 
I right out of grad school, I did I was an intern for your company and did a mm -hmm. did a Twelfth Night and an Antigone. That's um, right. That was a amazing, crazy summer. And I I think the show both shows were fantastic and uh, it was such a pleasure. According to your website and according to the timeline you just gave, it's been like 23 years and you've done over 70 shows, right? Something uh -huh. like that? Yeah, produced over 70 shows there, yep. I was going to ask how, how you think it has evolved over time, but what I think I really want to ask is how has it changed you? How has doing that much theater, putting that much, that much creative output, that much life onto the stage, how has that changed you at all? Oh, it's changed me tremendously. I think it um, it changed my perspective on so many things over those twenty three years, including my ability to take risks that I would not have taken at other times in my life. Uh, creative risks, um, in in particular, uh, the the realization that. If you don't, if you don't have something in in the world of theater go wrong every once in a while or fall flat, that you're you're not you're not you're not taking artistic risks. You're not mm -hmm. you're not pushing pushing things. And I know that we are not the riskiest theater in in Chicago land by a long shot, but there are still lots of shows where I look back and go. Yeah, that was a risk using those casting decisions or taking that particular viewpoint on one of Shakespeare's plays. Um, it could really have 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 fallen on its face, and it didn't. Uh, can you can you give me an example of one one risk? Oh, that I you, can, I'm sure you can give me an example of twelve. Yeah, but. yeah. Um, um, one of the <laughs> one of my favorite shows ever that we did out there. Um, was uh, actually the second time that we produced The Taming of the Shrew. And we decided that we would set it in the American West in the, you know, 1880s, 1890s. Mm -hmm. And also um, give it a framework, you know, because of course the original script has the framework of Christopher Sly and almost nobody does that because it's a horrible framework and it <laughs> disappears halfway through and it's just not funny to modern audiences. No. So, but but it existed. And so I posited to Allison, what if in addition to setting it in the in, in the American West, in the Wild West, what if we did a musical framework for it, a la the movie Cat Blue? which was narrated musically by Stubby K and Nat King Cole. Um, and it was, it's a very silly Western. Um, <laughs> Lee Marvin won the Academy Award for this dual role. Um, and it was actually the last movie that Nat King Cole made. He was, he was uh, already suffering badly from lung cancer, which eventually killed him when he made that movie. But it's always been one of my favorites. So we got together with our... Um, resident composer Michael Keith, a uh, resident composer at that time. We now have two, Michael Keith and Christopher Chris. But uh, Michael was our first one, and he and I got together and we wrote uh, a number of songs that were pastiches of the style of the movie and also pastiches 
of some of the classic Western theme songs from TV shows like Maverick and, and mm-hmm. the like. And then we decided that for the character of, um, oh, and now it, 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 it uh, Tranio, um, uh-huh. who, who, who disguises himself as the master, we mm-hmm. decided that in his attempt to pull off his disguises, that every time he entered, he would be dressed as a different iconic um, Western hero. So, um, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, he, I missed that one. Oh, it was hysterical! And one time he would come out um, uh, dressed like Tom Mix with the uh, uh, with the sheepskin uh, chaps and the uh-huh. big tall ten gallon hat. And another time he'd come out with a little cigarillo and the poncho and the flat hat and as the man with no name. And the final entrance he had, he had on the sky blue outfit and the black mask of the Lone Ranger. Mm. And it brought howls of laughter from the audience every time he made this. It was Alan Ball was the actor and he was incredibly funny. <laughs> but it was a huge risk because we were really kind of pushing the edges of, of the comedy um, and really risking things in terms of, of the story. But but still wanting to tell the story that was there, um, and then um, adding this musical um, uh, you know framework, and I was one of the two troubadours, and uh, and the brilliant Robert Cornelius, um, uh, who sings with uh, the group Poi Dog Pondering. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Robert was was my musical partner and has. And because of that show has become one of my dearest friends in the world. Mm. And, and we had an absolute blast, but here's the thing that I laugh about it. The, the reactions from the audience were like polar opposites. <laughs> I, one night I was, I was greeting people after the show and one of my regulars came up to me and said to me, Oh my God, David! That is the greatest Shakespeare I've ever seen. I had so much fun, and and the text was so clear, and everything worked. And oh my gosh, it was absolutely brilliant. And within sixty seconds, another patron came up to me, <laughs> kind of clapped me on the shoulder, gave me a half smile, and said, "David, don't ever do that to Shakespeare again, okay?" <laughs> <laughs> True story. Oh yeah, True no, story. I, I believe that. Yeah. Uh, so. A purist is not going to appreciate that. So you 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 take your chances. You take your chances and, and that's the other thing I've discovered about theater is no show makes everybody happy. Nope. Yeah. I, I know people who, who really don't like Hamilton. You know, and that's okay. The theme of that part of the conversation is about risk taking. A really good risk. The the good the risks in my life that I have taken that have even if they haven't paid off, they have been growing experiences and learning experiences. Mm-hmm. I think they have actually kind of fundamentally been beautiful and true to me. Even mm-hmm. if nobody else saw it, it was it mm-hmm. was an expression of what was was powerful from my perspective. It could be powerfully uh-huh. funny, like you're talking about, uh, taking this comedy and making it even more bizarre. Um, I don't know. Now I'm I, I think I have to go off and think about that for a while. Mm-hmm. You've you've given me something to think about. If if the risks that are 
worth running are in fact expressions of the beautiful and true in ourselves. Well, they, and and I, I think I think again, I you can't have. It seems to me it would be difficult to have great reward without taking great risk. Mm-hmm. Um, every time you ask someone out on a on a date or or accept a date there is there is a certain amount of risk involved but if you don't take that risk then um boy you're losing out it seems to me for most people i'm trying not to not to 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 say it's true for everybody but you're missing out on that possibility of a of of a wonderful relationship of an enriching Mm -hmm. of an enriching part of your life and even in theater um, I failures can also be true and beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. The very first play that I wrote was The Madness of Edgar Allan Poe, a love story. And it was tremendously risky, this nonlinear storyline um, in, a, in a, a site-specific production that moves from room to room. The audience splits after the first scene so that each, each half of the audience is seeing the middle sections in different order. Um, Mm -hmm. some actors are racing from room to room. So you have to get the timing, right? Um, it was just tremendously risky and boy, it all worked out and it was a huge critical success. And I was nominated for a Jeff award and I thought, wow, this playwriting stuff, (laughs) this is easy. Boy, it's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How was the second play, David? (laughs) Oh, that's you. Yeah. 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 You saw the setup in this. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's 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 a very common thing to have a, a first success and the second one is just grueling if it's not an outright failure. Yeah. So tell yeah. me. <laughs> the second one was, um, and again, we realized that there was a market for gothic horror and, and mm-hmm. we wanted to tap into that. And to this day, most of our fall shows are, are gothic, you know, uh, horror stories. And we've remounted. Around ho- yeah, exactly. Halloween time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, then I think it was the very next year or two years later, we did Poe two years in a row. And then, and then the third year after we'd latched onto this, I had written an adaptation of the first Gothic horror story called The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. And it's notable only because it's considered the first Gothic horror story, not because <laughs> it's considered very good. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and it's, but it's it's just crazy over the top. It is so wild. Yeah. And I thought, and it was one of Allison's favorite, which is another you know reason that gave me, okay, you know, I want to make my wife happy. Um, mm-hmm. And so I did this adaptation, and there was all this sword fighting in it, and um and and this giant statue that comes to life and this fountain of blood. and uh, <laughs> and this 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 evil, this evil duke who ends up accidentally killing his own daughter. Um, and, of course. Oh, I mean, and again, all of these, you describe it, and, and, and the, the general response from people who like this sort of thing is, that sounds fascinating. And I go, mm-hmm. oh, my God, it was dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> the reality was none of it quite worked. It was everything was just a half step off from working quite perfectly. And, um, oh, and that's the worst when it's, yeah. when it's yeah. not, not when it just goes and just falls completely flat, but it, when it's, when it's close to being right, but something yeah. just isn't there. And yeah. Oh, 
That hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it it did. So that's when I discovered <laughs> that. But I learned, I also tell people that I learned every bit as much, if not more, about playwriting from that play as I did from my first one at, that was a success, that I learned equally as much from the one that was, uh, in my opinion, a failure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe that. I know that most of most of the ways that I have learned, at least the things that I have learned that have been, in the end, most important to me, I have learned because I failed at them so hard for so long. <laughs> well, and to tie into this discussion, I, I, I realize that one of the reasons I think Poe works so well, my, my Poe show, mm-hmm. and that the Castle of Otranto didn't, is because what I was trying to do with the Poe show was actually to delve into the beauty and truth of Poe's life and his marriage to Virginia, that that was the whole core of this play, was how much this tragic love of his inspired um, um, all of the, the the grotesque stories that he told about death mm-hmm. and bleeding and all, and the truth of his love for her and everything there. And what I was trying to do with Castle of Otranto, boy, this is interesting because this is all just coming to mind. What I was trying to do with Castle of Otranto had nothing to do with truth or beauty. Isn't that interesting? I just realized that, that, that was not my goal in the storytelling. My goal was to be clever or funny or this or that or the other and not to be truthful and find the beauty in things. So I kind of had it, um, I had it bass backwards, mm-hmm. you know, that, that the joy and the incredible story comes out of dealing with something that's uh, beautiful and true. Wow. Thank you for that insight. Uh, David, you had that entirely on your own. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, just but I, provided, I just provided a platform and a question. Well, that's it. I wouldn't have had it if we hadn't had this conversation. I would not, I don't know that I ever would have delved into those two plays from that perspective had you not asked this question. Well, and it, the interesting thing is that as I'm having these conversations with people, um, they come back to me after after the interview is over and they they tell me I've not really ever thought about it like this before. And that's what sparked this project in the first place was that mm-hmm. I was having conversations with people about this concept of beautiful and true. And it it sparked these amazingly deep conversations. Um, yeah. I was like there must be something here. So it, clearly you've been a storyteller for pretty much your entire life. Yep. Yeah, always love telling stories. Are there particular stories that really spark your imagination? That the, What are the kinds of stories you really want to tell and that you're interested in telling? Or is that is that too big a question? Boy, and, and that's interesting because in, in, the, in the variety of plays that I have written, um, I, I, I don't have a particular genre or style that mm-hmm. um that I hove to um 
to me, I guess the stories that I'm trying to tell are stories that excite people and and always stories that amuse. Um, There's a great deal of tragedy in the madness of Edgar Allan Poe, but there's also uh, a lot of laughter. And I and Mm -hmm. I I I purposefully put that in there. Uh, I purposely made sure that there were comedic moments, uh, humorous moments that would give people uh, a break, you know, and uh, and and a contrast. Um, Well, it's a it's a break and a contrast, but it's also for most of us, I think the truth of, of horror and grief. And there are moments that are just really funny. Yeah. And I remember when, when my father was dying and I, it was a fairly protracted illness. And um, there were so many mm. times that it was just, there were little things and I can't even tell you what they are now, but they were so funny and we would just crack up. And to the outside world, it was just appalling. <laughs> You're well, like, how is this funny? I'm like, no, but when you're in it, it really is. Well, let, and, let yes, absolutely. Um, for for anybody listening to this podcast who does not know me and and my late wife Allison, we've mentioned Allison uh, a number of times, but I don't know that I have you know pointed out that she passed away in uh, in 2016 after a, a two year battle with ovarian cancer, and. Uh, and she was so fortunate in that her medical team um, made it possible for her to continue to live her life for that entire two years. And she directed multiple shows, directed her final show just um, uh, just a, a month before she passed. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I've always said is the way that we got through that was was with laughter. And and that always surprises a lot of people. And I, I, Allison and I both would would make fun of cancer and make fun of of impending death because we didn't know how else you could possibly deal with it. Um, when Allison was taking her chemo treatments at her um, oncologist's office, it was a group setting. Uh, she was not in a private room. He had this oh, space yeah. in in his office that was like a rumpus room. They were sitting in barca loungers. Uh-huh. With with their their you know um, uh, chemo tubes hooked up and um, and and you could go off to the far end and be alone if you wanted to and some women would choose to do that, but most of the women would sit around in a group, and I got to tell you right from the beginning the amount of laughter in that room was overwhelming and inspiring that virtually every woman that she met felt that same way that if you're not going to laugh at this monster um you're going to be in deep deep trouble mm-hmm. and that's of course as i say i grew up in that kind of family allison grew up in that kind of family too that there was always a great deal of laughter and laughter was part of how you coped with um with life yeah i'm actually remembering as you as you were talking i was remembering one incident i think it might have been a ro- the royal marriage. This would have been like 2012. I'm not sure. There was something where British women were wearing tiny hats. Oh, oh, the fascinators that they were wearing. Yes. Uh, I think you're right. I think it might have been for the wedding of uh, the prince and Kate Middleton. Um, it and it yes. would have been somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but there and were fascinators and... 
I was I, we were joking that I was going to bring Dad back a little fascinator, and then he was gonna we were gonna pin it to oh we can't pin it to your hair there isn't any. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're laughing. Yeah, and he laughed, and I laughed, and we all thought it was pretty funny at the time. But anybody who hasn't been through that experience is like. How could you say that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that's mostly it. That's mostly it. People who haven't been through that experience, you know, don't know. I cracked some joke uh, less than a month after Allison passed. I cracked some joke and I felt horrible. I wish I wish I could remember what the joke was, but it was something <laughs> something to do with Allison's death. And the the woman I was talking to literally blanched. It's one of the few times I have actually seen the color <laughs> drain out of someone's face. And then I thought to myself, oh my God, this woman is much too casual a friend. She didn't really understand the relationship that I had with Allison. She didn't yeah. know that we handled everything with humor. And I had to actively apologize and try to explain it and, and say, I'm terribly sorry. That's that was that's the coping mechanism that my wife and I, you know, have always had. And 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 she at least feigned understanding, but <laughs> I felt so horrible because, of course, not everybody not everybody does or can do that, you know. I mean, yeah. No, uh, I made about probably a month, maybe less than a month before my dad passed. I was in the elevator with a coworker and made some kind of really dark joke about it. And she did the same thing, absolutely blanched and looked at me like in with just horror and shock. And I was like, I'm sorry, that probably seems really inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Um so from since we're talking about Allison, mm -hmm. from the outside at least, and I know that every marriage looks different from the inside. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're chuckling already. From the outside, it looked like you had an amazing, strong, wonderful, beautiful, and true marriage. Is that, would you, would you say that kind of sums it up? <laughs> um, I, I think so. I think, however, that it sums up the, we were married for, uh, 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 just over 35 years before she passed. And I would say that that description summarizes the last 20 to 25 years of our marriage. I don't think it describes the first 10 years of our marriage, mm -hmm. which like so many marriages, um, um, was, was, was a lot more hard work than, than, you know, the last 25 years. And I think that it's interesting that the first 10 years, the reason that the last 25 years were so beautiful and true is that we, we figured out how to do that in the first 10 years, that mm -hmm. we figured out both the give and take. Neither one of us were particularly good at giving originally uh, on mm -hmm. things. And I, in particular, was very hidebound on a lot of things. And um, um, it, I mean, we, we make no bones. We made no bones about it, you know, long after the fact. Uh, uh, about five years in, we actually talked about divorce. Oh, wow. And, I had no idea. Yeah. And we, we hit some rocky 
period. And and the funny thing was that both of us talked about divorce because we thought the other one wanted it, not because we wanted it, but Aww. we thought the other one did. We thought the other one wanted out. We thought the other one. And then, of course, once we realized that neither one of us wanted that, that we that we did love each other and we wanted to to to, to make this work, then we got some uh, some good marriage help, some good marriage therapy. And uh, and over the next uh, three or four years, um, uh, on and off, you know, continued to get that help and figure out what it was. And uh, um, yeah, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of it was me. I was a typical male in so many ways uh, um, of, of, as I say, not being flexible, not uh, be, being way too rigid on certain things and, uh, and, and not understanding fully the, uh, the joy of give and take, which is really funny because, of course, I was much worse at that with, with my wife than I was with virtually anybody else. I wasn't that way as a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't yeah. surprise me at all. Uh, I think I think our partners and the people we're closest to often get what's what I what's the how I would how do I want to put this? Not our worst selves, but kind of our real selves. <laughs> well, and it's because, of course, you're together so much, and right, and the more you're together, the more uh, the more uh, room there is for friction. And I certainly am not going to say that after 10 years, there magically was no friction. We just both became much better at, at dealing with it and resolving mm-hmm. it. And again, I, I say at least, at least two thirds of that was I got an awful lot better at it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I, I, again, I, I don't think I'm being overly generous. Um, if anything, maybe it was three quarters me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah yeah so it sounds like the key is uh failing a lot and then <laughs> and then resolving to to work and get better well and to, I, I, and to learning to learning how to how how to communicate better how to be in partnership better i think yeah. maybe I'll be honest with you, and 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 I've 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 told this story before that one of the big issues I have always been um, a neatnik. I've always had a very uh, orderly house, a very clean house, a very neat house, and um, and that's you know I'm I'm very much a a left brain logical sequential kind of person, and Allison was very much a right brain um, uh, creative type. And as such, she was the kind of person who liked things spread out where she could see them. Mm-hmm. And we yep. didn't realize all of this at that time. I mean, now looking back, I understand all of the, all of this. But that drove me absolutely crazy. And <laughs> she why is a, the dining room table always covered yes. with stuff? Oh, absolutely, and, and it would just drive me crazy. Um, I was the kind of person, still am, the kind of person who will rarely go to bed with dishes in the sink. It just, mm-hmm. it just, it just, it's like, it's, it's like uh, sand, you know, grating on me when I get up and there's dishes in the sink. We're starting the day at that point. And Allison was the kind of person who just didn't understand. Well, I'll get to it. It doesn't matter, mm-hmm. you know. So, so what's the big deal? We still got clean dishes to use for the next meal. We'll get to it. And um, 
And, and it was those kinds of things that were precipitating factors. And I'll be honest with you, and again, goes in with the beauty and the truth. Um, Allison, from the moment I met her, was one of the most beautiful women I've ever known and one of the most beautiful parts of my life from the moment. We started off as friends and then, uh, and then, and then became, um, uh, started dating, you know. Um, we were both actually engaged to other people when we first met mm. and, and we became, <laughs> we became friends, you know, truly just friends. Anyway, I came to the realization after, you know, some therapy that on my side, this was, this was the issue that I could have my neatness in order or I could have Allison, but I was never going to have both. Mm, and I had mm-hmm. to decide what truly mattered. And once I had that realization, then I said, well, there's no contest. <laughs> I want Allison. Now, Aww. that doesn't mean it was easy from that point, because that's when I said, OK, how do I how do I accomplish this? How do I you know, how do I find the compromise? How do I find the ways to do this? But of course, the amazing thing was that I, on Allison's side, it was David doesn't really value me as much as this other. And once she mm-hmm. realized that I did value her more, then it was so much easier for her to make the adjustments too mm-hmm. and, and find that middle ground because she felt, she felt valued. She felt that I, you know, using the, the topic we're talking about, she felt that I found her and, and our relationship beautiful and true and more important than anything else. So, mm. yeah. I confess I'm at a bit of a loss for words after that story. <laughs> uh, that's just, it's lovely. And I'm going to be playing it back, I think, occasionally as I learn <laughs> to grow and become a better version of myself in relationship. So yeah. thank you for that. And again, it's um, not to say that, that everything was, was, was uh, smooth as silk. <laughs> no, no, no. That. I'm fairly, I'm we fairly certain. I remember at least one time where the two of you were glaring at each other that summer. Oh. That we were. Oh, and it, it was quiet, and but in the in that garage, oh. just Alice kind of quietly Allison. glaring at each other. <laughs> well, you're lucky. You're lucky that your memories are, are Alice and I quietly glaring at each other. You can you can bet. I'll be honest with you that there are people out there who, if they're listening to this, will laugh and go, "Oh, I remember some fights between Allison and David at First Folio <laughs> that were anything but quiet." Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but well, maybe I maybe I've changed it in my mind. It no, been no, twenty no, years. There, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure there were uh, they, those weren't every disagreement we had. We no, you know, no, no. But yeah, but yeah. Uh, so I. I don't want to, I want to be mindful of your time. Oh, I've got um, all the time you need. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Lovely. I, I, I'm starting to ask this question of people and I, I've forgotten the last couple, but I really enjoy this question. Is there a moment in a book or a movie or a play that every time you watch it or experience it, it makes you cry? Or laugh, or it, you experience kind of the same emotion every time you see it. Um, oh gosh, all, all, yeah, both of those, both of those. There are there, and and there are. There's one movie in particular that never fails to make me 
um, both laugh and cry um, at multiple points throughout the course of the movie. Uh, it's it's one of my two or three all time favorite movies, and it's um, the apartment with oh. uh, uh, Jack Lemon and Shirley mm-hmm. MacLaine, Fred McMurray, and um, and directed uh, and and co written by Billy Wilder, and mm. and it's it's actually kind of got a double importance to it. Um, I I loved the movie originally, always have, but there's also parallels to it to um uh to my uh wooing of Allison after my fiance mm. and I called it off and also the show that Allison and I were doing when we met was the musical Promises Promises which is mm-hmm. based on the apartment and okay. I was playing the Jack Lemon role of the the lovable loser who goes through all this trouble and eventually wins the the beautiful woman in the end. Um, and Allison was not playing that role. She was, she was one of the other roles in the show, but, uh, but somewhere down the road, eventually I did, I did win her. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there's numerous places in the apartment, um, sad moments where, where he's let down or, or where she is being abused by her married boyfriend played by Fred McMurray that, that make me cry. Um, mm. and, and other moments of just hilarity. And then at the very end, when the two of them finally get together, um, you know, it never, never fails to, to make me cry. Mm. I have several myself, but, uh, the one that has come up the most recently, I think is Moana. Oh yeah. Have you yeah. seen it? You've seen it. Yeah. Uh, Listener, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil the heck out of it for you. So just go <laughs> la 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 for a bit. Um, the end. The end when Moana mm-hmm. realizes that uh, that the the volcano monster, the lava monster, is in fact mm-hmm. the, the 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 goddess, and that she has been abused and her heart has been taken from her. Yeah, and I. And Moana sees her and really mm-hmm. sees her. And it's the first time anybody's really seen her mm-hmm. in in ages. And that moment just I'm 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 getting choked up just oh. thinking about it right now. Well, I'm I'm a sucker for for especially Disney and Pixar movies. Um I don't I I, 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 I <laughs> there is about there is about two minutes of the movie up that mm. I never knew what happened in that two minutes <laughs> until I was watching it on video and could pause because after the opening sequence, I would be weeping so uncontrollably that I had no idea what happened in the next minute or two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just in, like I say, until I started watching it on videotape and was able to pause it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh. Pixar's the worst. Pixar's the absolute worst for this, or to put it differently, the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, because funny... so, well, because so many of their most of their of of their movies are fundamentally about loneliness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and people, people or 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 cars or anything overcoming loneliness and finding a home. Absolutely. And I think that is so profoundly resonant for most of us that we just lose our minds over Pixar. And that's, 
Everybody, that is the secret. That's the secret of Pixar. So the next time you watch a movie, it's deeply emotionally manipulative <laughs> and also very beautiful. Well, and that has been that has been the truth of, of, of all of the great uh, Disney Disney films going back. Um, when Allison and I started dating, when when she broke up with her fiance and I was uh, actually able to start, you know, dating her instead of or in addition, I shouldn't say instead of, I've always been one of her best friends and vice versa. But in addition, I was able to say, okay, let's see if we can go beyond that. We started dating. It was maybe our third date that I suggested we go see the movie Bambi. Now, oh, this I is, knew you were going to say that. Oh, well, no. <laughs> this, is, this is in the days before, this is how old I am. This is in the days before, um, before VCRs even. And so the Disney movies were only released every seven years at the theater. And if you didn't see mm -hmm. it then, you didn't see it for another seven years. And I had always been a big Disney fan. And I hadn't seen Bambi at that <laughs> point for probably 14 years. So uh -huh. I said, hey, um, it may seem strange, but how about we go see Bambi? And oh, and she just squealed with the light. She said, oh, I can't believe you brought that up. That's wonderful. So we went to the film and we got our, our soda. We got our, our, our popcorn. And I've got my arm around her and the movie starts and you get about five minutes in and suddenly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do see it coming. Suddenly I think to myself, oh my God, I know what's about to happen. <laughs> oh, I am going to be, I am going to be a wreck. I am just, I am just going to be a blubbering, you know, mess. And, <laughs> and sure enough, you know. <laughs> Uh, Bambi's mother gets killed. I am weeping, and Allison reaches over and squeezes my arm, and and just snuggles a little closer to me, and then told me later on that that was the moment she knew she could marry me, because oh. she said she couldn't imagine she couldn't imagine being married to someone who did not cry when Bambi's mother died. You know, so she said, I wasn't the, it wasn't the moment that I made up my mind to marry you, but it was the moment that I made up my mind. I could be married to this I, man, I you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, so, so yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is, I have tears in my eyes, David. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a beautiful story. Oh, oh, this has been so delightful. Um, oh, well, I only have one question left for you. Okay. And that is the one that everybody gets asked, which is, you sent me a picture. Uh-huh. That's really a statement, not a question. Um, it is a picture of flowers from your mm -hmm. garden that I think you took, what, two days ago? No, that, that photo is actually one that I took last year, and, I, and, it's, and it's, one of the, it's one of the only two really beautiful photos that I've ever taken. I am not really a photographer. I'm a picture taker who sometimes gets lucky. Um, <laughs> uh, and that is a, a photo of, uh, uh, of uh, Lily of the Valley that was taken in my garden about a, a year ago. And, uh, um, and I actually had it blown up to uh, 12 by 18 and it's framed and hanging in my kitchen right now. Mm. And what do you, what, what do you love about it? There is the thing I love about the about the picture is it contains just about everything I think that's true about beauty and life. 
in that some of the little Lily of the Valley bells are are just perfect. They're 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 vibrant and alive and just just blossomed. And then there's a couple that are actually starting to turn just a little brown. They're mm-hmm. they're just past their peak. There's some um, like spider webbing behind it in the background. Um, um, there's there's you know the lily of the valley um, blades the the leaves and some of them are are, are almost perfect and some of them are um, maybe a little raggedy at the edge just like just like life mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then again everything in my life comes back to Allison um, the lily of the valley was one of her favorite flowers and mm. so it's you know it's 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 impossible for me to look at that and think about it without thinking about her. And of course, they also have this incredibly beautiful um, scent. Um, but again, they're very short-lived. You you have to appreciate them while they're there, and their you know their blooming period is maybe three weeks, and then and then they're gone. If you miss it, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. So that one picture has everything. I think so. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah. At least in my, at least in my, in my worldview. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's just. I'm out of words now. I. <laughs> that was such a delightful conversation, David. Thank you oh, so much. Thank you for letting me be a part of this whole project. I I'm just honored, and uh, and this is this has just been delightful talking with you. I want to thank David again for taking the time to talk with me, and especially for his thoughtfulness and insights. You should definitely check out First Folio Theatre, especially if you're in Chicago. They do such fun, rich work, and like almost all performing arts organizations right now, they're not able to be in front of their audience, so I'm extra happy to be giving them a shout out. You can find them at www.firstfolio.org or in the show notes for this episode. As always, thank you for listening, and if you like what you hear, find us on iTunes and subscribe. Search for The Beautiful and True Project. I hope that listening inspires you to focus on the beautiful and true in your own life. We'll talk again next Sunday. Have a great week!